0: Good morning to you all, and as you're probably aware by now, our theme that we're exploring this term is exactly uh, the song that was sung about arising and shining, and the topic we want to talk about this morning is shine because of your faith, to shine because of your faith. I'd like to do something a little different, if I may, to start. I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning in its entirety. Um, It won't come up on the screen, so if you can be a hearer of the Word initially, and then we'll unpack it a little bit and go. So we're going to be spending time in James chapter 2, as we have been in the book of James so far this term, and we're going to be reading from verse 14 to 16. If you have a Bible or a device, you're welcome to follow with me. Um, as we work through the text a little bit later, it will come up on the screen, but I thought just to read it as, uh, so we can hear the Word of God. James chapter 2, verse 14. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As a body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Shall we pray? Father, as we engage with this passage of your word, we thank you for your word that it is living and active and that you speak to both our hearts and our minds. And I pray as we share around your word today that you would apply this word for each person in just the space that it needs to be applied. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been in James, we remember that James has been written to a group of Messianic Christians, Jewish Christians, who are starting to experience hardship and trouble and trial because of their faith. I think you've probably realized by now that James is quite direct. He's quite forthright. He doesn't beat about the bush. He says things directly, like get rid of all moral filth. And in this passage, he's also quite forthright and direct. And I want to, as we get into the passage, start by exploring the two examples that James gives us in this passage. He refers to Abraham, and he refers to Rahab, the prostitute. Let's look at Abraham's faith journey so that we can understand a bit of the broader context that James is alluding to when he speaks of Abraham in this passage. We can read this story, and we don't have time in the service to read it all through, but from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through to 25, we read the story of Abraham. But we first encounter Abraham in Genesis 12 when he's about 75 years old. So his life of faith, his journey of faith actually starts late. Sorry for you if you think you're retired. 75 years old at Iran, God appears to Abram and he promises him that he will bless him, but more than that, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And Abram responds to what God has initiated. God initiates, Abram responds to what God has initiated with faith. What is faith in this context? Simply this that Abram believed that God would do what he said he would do. He believed that when God said he would bless him, he would be blessed. When he believed that God, he believed that God said he would bless all the nations through him. Abram believed that. But more than that, Abram then acts on this belief. He acts on this faith and he takes his whole family, he uproots them and in effect emigrates to a different country, to a different space, to a different place in response to what God has initiated in his life. And so he's brave and he steps out. He lives in the area where God has promised him that he will inherit the land. His descendants will inherit this land for a while. But a famine starts, and so he has to go down to Egypt because that's where there's food. And he succumbs. This man of faith succumbs to fear. This is one of the things I love about the Bible stories is that they're authentic. They're true to life. They reflect honestly our humanity. So Abraham is human, just like us. And what happens is... The Bible says, by the way, that Sarah was very beautiful, his wife, Sarah. I'm going to call her Sarah. I know her name changed, but we'll just stick with Sarah just for now, her final name. Okay. The Bible says she was very beautiful, so she must have been beautiful. And uh, the, the, the Egyptians notice how beautiful she is, and Abram gets scared, and he's scared they're going to kill him so that they can take his wife. So he tells a lie. He tells everyone that actually she's his sister. Now, technically, there was some truth to the statement. Later on, it explains for us that she was actually his half-sister. Same father, different mother. They got married. I don't know how that worked, okay? But they were. So it's kind of a lie, but it's not the truth, fully the truth. And so out of fear, he says this, and then Pharaoh actually takes her into his household. But then God intervenes. Again, God rescues, God saves, and he causes a curse to come on the household, and they figure out that Abram has lied to them. And they give him, because of Sarah, they'd blessed him and made him quite wealthy, but then they actually just ask him to leave the country. So he kind of gets uh, expelled from the nation of Egypt. And he goes back to live in the promised land. So he goes from faith to succumbing to fear, all in one chapter as it's recorded for us. A couple of things happen, but the next place I want to drop in is in chapter 15 in Genesis, where God again initiates. God again comes to Abraham and he says, I'm really going to bless the nations through, and it's going to be through a son that you will have. And again, Abraham responds in faith, and he says, I'm going to believe that God will do what he said he would do. And the covenant there is renewed, and it's uh, Isaac, the one who would come and fulfill all God's promises, is made to to Abraham there. And again, Abraham succumbs to his humanity because, I don't know the time sequence, but in the next chapter, we read about the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Where Abraham, in his own strength and by his own design, tries to fulfill the promise of God, in a way that God never intended to fulfill the promise. He wanted to do something legitimate in an illegitimate way, as Pastor Louis spoke about last week. And out of his own effort, Sarah's battling to fall pregnant, and so he does what is a common custom of his day. He takes her maidservant, and they have a son together. He succumbs again to fear. He tries to initiate God's promises in his own strength. A couple of chapters later, Genesis 17, God again comes to Abram and he initiates and he says, remember the covenant. Ishmael's not the one that you'll have another son. Isaac's the one through whom the covenant will come. And again, Abram believes God and he responds to what God is doing by circumcising his whole household at that time. In the region that Abram's living in, so there's this high moment of faith, moment of fear. High moment of faith, a moment of self-effort. High moment of faith. And then another response of fear. In the region Abram's living in, the the ruler of the region's name is Abimelech. And he also notices Sarah because, remember, she's very beautiful. And again, Abram succumbs to fear and he says, not wife, sister. He must have been in big trouble with his wife, I think. Just would be my opinion. And again, God intervenes and protects Sarah's honor and rescues her and intervenes for Abram in that situation. So another moment of fear. But eventually by Genesis 21, God fulfills his promise and Isaac is born. We know that this time that Abram's about 100 years old. So 25 years of a faith journey that God's been walking with Abram. This is a miracle, by the way, 100-year-old father, 90-something-year-old mom. Okay, miracle. But it's a response to faith. Abram acts on what God has initiated and Isaac is born, the son of the promise, And it goes well for about another 18 to 20 years, as far as we can tell. Isaac's busy growing up. And then Abram's toughest test comes. God comes to him and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Give the son, the one that embodies your whole faith journey, the one that embodies every promise I've given to you, that son, come sacrifice him, give him back to me. And here, Abram, in this trial, responds in faith, and he gets Isaac, and they go on a journey to the place that God had told him to go. And they go up the mountain, and Abraham prepares the sacrifice. Hebrews 11, which is kind of the New Testament's hall of fame for people of faith. Hebrews 11 speaks about Abraham, and it says that he was so certain of his faith in God at this time, was so strong after this 40-year journey, plus year journey, that his faith in God is so strong that he was prepared to kill his son, firmly believing that God would raise him from the dead. He was so convinced that God would do what he said he would do. His faith was so set on God because he'd grown to know him. He'd grown to know him as the faithful God, the one who keeps his promises in his faith journey, that he knew that God would, even if he had to do a miracle like raising his son from the dead. Fortunately, that's not how it worked out. God then provides a different sacrifice. And Abram becomes the father of the faith. He's the father of the Jewish nation, but he comes, as Paul tells us uh, in his writings, that he's the father of all those who believe. He becomes a hero of faith. God initiates, Abram responds in faith, and then takes the actions that are commiserate or that correspond to that faith. The other person that's mentioned in the story uh, that James refers to, at least, is Rahab the prostitute. This is quite a contrast Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the man of faith, and Rahab, the prostitute. James doesn't mince words, it's what she was. You can read around Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6. What essentially happens is the nation's now ready to conquer, to take the promised land. Basically to take another step in fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. But before they go in, Joshua sends out some spies, particularly two of them to the city of Jericho, because he knew that was the first city he had to conquer. And the spies go into the city, and for some reason they go to Rahab's house. Rahab obviously ran a brothel, and I don't know why they went there. It's really dodgy, actually. (laughs) But maybe it was the best place in the city to gather information, or something holy like that. Um, But they go there, and the city officials become aware that there's spies from the Israelite nation in the city, and so they come hunting for the men, obviously to do them harm. It seems, though, that Rahab, if we read Joshua 6, had a very clear understanding of what God was doing. She'd heard of what God had done in Egypt 40 years previously, more or less. She'd heard about how God had preserved the nation. She knew God's plan was that they would inherit the land. She responding, again, to what God initiates in faith. And she says to the spies, don't worry, I'll hide you. Under threat, under pressure, under trial, she responds to the revelation of God that she had in faith. And she hides the spies, and then more than that, she actually helps them get out the city and tells them which way to go so that they don't get caught. Two very interesting examples that James picks. The patriarch, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of all who believe, and the prostitute. Quite a contrast. And I believe what, part of what James is doing is he wants to show us this pattern that God initiates, people respond in faith and then take actions. They do things in response to the faith that God has had them. There's the insider and the outsider that because they respond to God in faith with good deeds, they become part of the family of God. Rehob becomes one of the direct descendants in the bloodline of Jesus. And so God includes, no matter your background, no matter your religious pedigree, your social status, your economic background, when we respond in faith and act in a way that corresponds, God makes us part of his family. We live in a world that well it's an interesting world largely, but one of the things that is interesting for me in the world is that we tend we, other people, not people in this room, other people, tend to live compartmentalized lives. In other words, we allow things to fall into certain categories. One of the ways that this might manifest is that you the space where your faith is, the space where you have your things that you believe about God and about the Bible and about Jesus, can possibly be locked up alone in a certain category. And in the space where you work or where you do your family or where you engage in this public space, sometimes people think those as two very different spaces and unconnected. And we develop a gap between what we believe and how we behave. There are people who believe in God but live like they don't. And they find that they can reconcile it because this is about, this is in the realm of faith and ideas and heart, and this is about the real world where, you know, we've got to make a living and we've got to get things done by whichever way we can. And so sometimes what people profess and what they practice are different. The creeds that they hold to and the conduct that they exhibit is different. And what James is really probably getting at in this passage is that what we believe and how we behave must correspond. Perhaps I can say it best this way, and if perhaps this is the phrase you can remember from today, is that what James is saying is that your faith must translate from private space to public space. Your faith must translate from intention and belief to action. Your faith must translate from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday. Your faith must Friday, Saturday too. Your faith must translate. So let's look at this passage of Scripture and and go through it um, kind of paragraph by paragraph. James chapter 2, let's read verse 14 together, and it should come up on the screens for you now. James starts and he says, what good is it? What use is it in claiming is really what he's trying to say. What good is it? What is it good is it in claiming, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds that correspond so can such a faith, a faith that's merely just in the space of mental ascent, merely just in the space of belief, can such a faith really save them? Now the NIV translates the word deeds, I know other translations translate it as works. Uh, it's the same Greek word. I think deeds is helpful because it's implying that you're doing something in response to something else. But James is asking this question, is it it real faith if there isn't a lifestyle, if there aren't deeds that correspond with what you believe? And so let's talk a little bit about faith and works or faith and deeds. The thing to remember is that faith is always primary, primary in terms of order and primary in terms of importance as well. Faith is always primary. It always starts with faith. Well, actually, it starts with God initiating and us responding in faith. But faith is always first. It's interesting, even for James, if we get to verse two in chapter one, he's already saying, this is how God builds your faith. He speaks about faith 15 times in the book of James, 14 of those times are just in the first two chapters. So James doesn't think faith is unimportant. He thinks that faith must be, it is the beginning, it is the priority, but it must be accompanied by deeds that correspond with his faith. Remember, the book of James is one of the earliest New Testament writings, if not the first book that was written, and to a very specific audience. One of the other writers of the New Testament, the apostle Paul, is very strong. on. The, he says things like faith is the only way you come into right relationship with God, and faith alone. So are Paul and James saying different things? I don't think so. I think what Paul is saying is you can't do works to come into a right relationship with God. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter in Paul's day if you obey the whole law of Moses. It's not gonna get you ultimately into a right relationship with God. It doesn't matter what kind of philanthropist you are, how good you are, how kind you are. When you come to God, you can only come in faith, believing that he will do what he said he would do, that he said if you confess your sins, he will forgive you and grant you life eternal that if you respond to him in faith, he will save you and forgive your sins. As if they never, ever happened. That is faith. So Paul probably talks, when he, Paul talks about works, he's probably referring much more about the works of the law. The works that were associated particularly with the, the law of Moses. But it's, it's works that are generated out of self-effort in order to try and please God. And as Pastor Louis shared last week so eloquently... When we come to God, we come with nothing. There's nothing we can do in terms of our self-effort and our works that can get us into right relationship with God. It's mercy, and it's the price that Jesus Christ has paid for us. James's focus is a little bit more on what happens after you've come to faith, the works you do after faith. So Paul probably talks more a bit about works of the law, and James probably talks about works of love. Paul talks about it in the same way. In the book of Galatians, he says, Your faith must express itself in love. God has prepared, I think it's Colossians, where he says God has prepared good works for you to do in advance. Paul's saying the same thing in those passages as what James is saying here. But James is very clear. You have to have faith in Jesus. Remember always that James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus. He knew him. If anybody could have come in by family association, James might have got the nod. But James in himself knows that you first come by faith. So even as we read this passage where James is talking a lot about the deeds that accompany our faith, it's important that we understand that faith is first. When James talks about deeds or when he talks about works, he's talking about the deeds of love that we do. It's the, when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me, it's those works that come from obedience because we love God. So effectively, James is saying, Your faith must translate, must translate from belief and inside you to what happens externally in your conduct. Let's keep reading in verse 15 of James chapter 2. James writes and he says, suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. This is a very challenging couple of verses of Scripture, particularly living in a country where we are faced with poverty quite directly on a daily basis. James is talking here and he says, If a brother or sister within the household of faith literally is naked, is clothed in rags, and does not have a daily allowance, does not have enough food for the day, and all you do is you say, what the Jewish word would have been, shalom. The Jewish word shalom means peace, but it also refers to a little bit broader, like a well-being. But if you know that somebody is in need and you just say, shalom, how are you helping him? That's what James is saying. Now, in the way that the, the original language, the Greek is constructed, part of what it implies is if that is your continuous practice, if that is your ongoing way that you deal with people in need, if you just say, well, bless you, or shalom to you, if that is your normal practice. And obviously it implies that you have the means to be able to help them. If you don't have food and somebody else needs food, you can't help in that space. But when you have the means to help, but your continual practice is to go, well, bless you, and don't ever attend to anything beyond that, James is saying, how does that help? What good is that? He's saying that faith by itself, a faith that just goes, well, I hope it's all gonna be fine, that kind of faith is not a real faith. He's saying that we need to move beyond our good intentions and beyond goodwill. In verse 18, he carries on. It's a bit in your face, eh? Hey? This Bible. Sure, okay. But someone will say, he's arguing hypothetically now. If someone will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. In other words, you're an ideas person and I'm the action man. Or I'm an ideas person and you're the action guy. You know, I, I know how to pray and confess, and my theology is all good, and you're the action person. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in meetings like that. You have the ideas people and the action people. Some people just want to get stuff done, and some people just want to talk about it. Okay. So he's saying hypothetically, some people say, no, it's just, you know, it's just about what you believe. You must believe the right thing. And he's going, in actions, he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll show you my faith by your deeds. You show me your faith without doing anything, it can't be seen. Why? It's just all in your head, or it's all in your spirit, wherever it would be. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. And then I think somewhat sarcastically, or ironically, if you're an English teacher, even the demons believe that, and shudder. (laughs) He's alluding here to the Jewish Shema, which is basically a daily confession that the Jewish people made. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It would start something like this, here are Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's saying it doesn't help you make this religious confession You're just saying this religious thing, and it never translates beyond the confession. If it never translates beyond the creed. He says, even the demons know there's one God. It's not enough just to know that there's one God. Even the forces of darkness know that. Except with them, it causes fear. It's an interesting analogy that James does here, where he draws this analogy between people who just say stuff and demons who just know stuff. And so he's saying we have to move beyond belief to a place of real trust, beyond mental assent, so where our faith does translate. We move beyond just the creeds and the confessions of our faith to a real place where we live our faith out in practice. James is again saying our faith must translate beyond ourselves. It must translate into deeds that align with God's good purposes. James carries on in verse 20, kind of neutrally, you foolish person. it's very polite Bible language for you idiot, okay? You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? The word is sterile. Faith without deeds is sterile. It cannot be fruitful. Your faith cannot be fruitful unless it translates into actions, And then he goes into this example about Abraham. Abraham, and and out of the whole life of Abraham, as I shared earlier, James picks his greatest trial because James's readers were experiencing trial. Was not your father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. That's the important phrase. His faith first and his actions were working together. Together And his faith was made complete. It was expressed more fully in what he did. And then the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness because his belief translated into actions. And ultimately, Abraham gets called God's friend. And so we see even in Abraham's life journey that he didn't just believe once. He didn't just exercise his faith once. He didn't just say the sinner's prayer once. His faith needed a continual expression through the next 40 years plus of his life. His faith kept growing. He had ups and he had downs, but ultimately he's remembered as the hero of faith because he kept pursuing God. He kept translating, responding to what God did in faith, translating that into appropriate action, and he's then known as the hero of faith. It's interesting as Abram's faith progresses, he is he in covenantal relationship with God? That starts in chapter 12, chapter 15. It's renewed a few times. God makes this covenant with Abram. It's a covenantal relationship. But ultimately, Abram's remembered as God's friend because he pursues this living faith that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a bit probably like what Paul says, is that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We keep working out our salvation, not to earn favor with God, favors already given, not to earn our salvation, salvation's paid for by Jesus, but in response to what God has already done. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without a spirit is dead, uh, the Greek says, as a body without a spirit is a corpse. It's just cool. Uh, as a body without a spirit is a corpse, so faith without deeds is dead. So again, no matter your background, patriarchal prostitute, if you respond to what God initiates in faith, believing that he will do what he said he would do, and you take action on that, Rahab did something because of what she believed, under pressure from the authorities, God then provided for her. So whether you come from a religious background or a less than moral background, it's faith that translates into deeds that matters. It's a very powerful analogy that James ends this section on. Just like a body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If you imagine that I had a coffin here on stage, I thought it would be awkward to have it here the whole service, so I didn't pursue it. But if you have faith that's merely a mental assent, that it's merely an ideological agreement, a faith that's merely a rational understanding, and it doesn't translate into how you live, if it doesn't change how you live, it's like your faith is lying in a coffin. And I believe what the Lord is reminding of us today is maybe it's time for some of us to take our faith out the coffin, to resurrect our faith, to translate our faith into what God wants to do. What is God initiating in your life? And worship team, you can join me. What is God initiating in your life? What's he saying? What's he challenging you on? Are you going to be able to respond to God in faith by believing that he will do what he said he would do? And then to say, well, Lord, you've initiated. I'm responding in faith. How do I translate that into deeds? How do I translate that into action?" Perhaps John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, summarized it quite well. He said something like this. He said, faith alone justifies. It is really faith that brings you into right relationship with Jesus. Nothing else. Faith alone justifies. But then Calvin went on and he said, but faith which justifies is not alone. Faith which brings us into right relationship with God, a living faith, translates into deeds of love, translates into actions of kindness as we respond to God. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I believe the Lord is challenging us because James challenges us, that our faith must translate. What is God challenging you on? Where must your faith translate this morning? um, Shine because of your faith faith. How do you shine? What makes you shine? Because you have faith. Well, I believe it's when you move beyond mental ascent. When you believe beyond just a doctrinal understanding and you translate your faith into all the spaces you find yourself. From the boardroom to the bedroom. From your most public space to your most private space. I believe the Lord is challenging us this morning that our faith must translate. And so I'd like to pray this morning and ask that we do a simple thing. It might be profound, but it's simple to start with. Can we, as we're sitting here as a community of believers, say, ask God a couple of questions? Lord, what are you initiating in my life? What are you starting in my life? What are you already doing in my life that I need to recognize and cooperate with? And then the challenge is to say, well, I'm going to believe that God will do what he said he would do. And I'm going to respond with that kind of faith. I'm going to believe that God can do it in me. I can believe that God can do it through me. By the way, the word deeds that's used here is not just external. It's internal deeds. So like when you have to get rid of moral filth and it's bad thoughts or something, that's a work of love when you work on that. It's also acts of kindness that are external. So it's a fully encompassing understanding of the word. But God, is there anything you want me to do with my faith? How must my faith translate today? And I can't tell you what those answers are. I can't predict what they are. But can we pray together this morning? You can remain seated and I'd like to pray for us. Father, we acknowledge your word as it's recorded for us here in the book of James. Lord, we want to be people that have a living faith. A faith that translates into those areas of life that you want. But Lord, we pause this morning. Help us to see what you're initiating in our lives. What you're already doing. And for some of us, Lord, that will be clear. For some of us, it will be a new thought. But give us grace and mercy, Lord, to respond in, in faith to you. And make it clear for us what our next action step is what the deed of love is that you want us to do in response to that. What deeds of obedience are you calling us to as individuals, but also, Lord, as a community of faith? And we're just going to remain silent for probably no more than a minute and just create a space for God to be able to speak to us. That might come through a thought, you might hear a still, small voice, you might just have a clear impression, or you might just have a desire to get involved or to start doing something. Lord, we wait on you. Would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Father, we acknowledge that you're a good father. That you love us and we respond to that love this morning. And we want to do those deeds of love, those good works that you've prepared for us in advance to do. Because we believe that you can do what you said you would do in our lives and through our lives. Help us to be individuals and a community that's faith. That, shine, that our faith shines, Lord, as we respond to you. And Lord, we learn also from Abraham that we can't do this in our own strength, in our own good ideas. Help us to follow your plans, to do your will in your way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you can take just the one thing into the week, and then as on Monday, as on Sunday... That as you raise your hallelujah on Monday, you raise your hallelujah on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday too. Just as I was preparing, I had a very clear impression, and I think it's the Lord, and I, and I feel I, I must just share. How, what we believe and how we behave need to be linked. They are not two separate things that are different parts of our lives. And I had a thought just that perhaps there was someone who, a married person, and you're being seriously tempted to to step outside the marriage boundary. I've been seriously tempted to commit adultery. And I felt the Lord just said make sure that your behavior aligns with what you actually believe, even when you're under the trial of temptation, like Abraham and Rahab were. Stand strong. And I'm wondering if sometimes the power of sin, the power of temptation, is because we keep it secret, we keep it in darkness. And I wonder if you can find another brother or sister to share with and say, I'm really being tempted here, and I think the Lord will break the power of that temptation in your life. I think that was maybe something specific just for a person perhaps listening even on the social media spaces too. But will you remember what you believe and how you behave? They need to correspond. Because faith without works is sterile. It's fruitless. Can't produce fruit. Amen and amen to the word of God.